John, I want to introduce you first. So welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. And uh, thank you. I appreciate being here. No problem. I just wanted to continue what we were just talking about that uh, you moved uh, to the United States from from Budapest in 1956, at 1956, right? Yes. When yes, you're 12 years correct. old. That's correct. And, and you learned about America from the bottom up, you, you were mentioning. And yes. then this came to influence your your work now or your life's work, really. Oh, yeah, definitely, because I realized the difference between uh, what the uh, teachers were uh, writing on the blackboard and the real world, and that uh, enabled me to be a better um, scholar, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, how, did, how did that come about? Was that in your undergrad or maybe even high school when, when you were getting into these topics more? No, I would say in high school, I really didn't understand what was going on. You know, I had uh, certain uh, certain reflexes, certain uh, ideas, but I was just uh, basically trying to get by and and um, and it took me a long time to figure out what was uh, going on. But uh, it helped me in a way that uh, I was uh, in different worlds, you know, and that meant to me that I didn't make a commitment. I wasn't committed to one ideology. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that in Hungary, too, I uh, was a member of the Jewish community which meant that I wasn't, uh, wasn't totally committed to the ideology that they were propagating in terms of uh, communism. I was a very good student, to be sure, but I wasn't committed. I, you know, at the time, I didn't realize it, but now looking back, I realized that I wasn't totally committed to being what I was in the classroom. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you were a good student, so you studied well, did well on tests. Yeah, I was a good student in class. And then when I ho went home, I was anti-communist and uh, a little bit Jewish also, which meant that you had to think in various ways about things. Um, and then, of course, came immigration, and that made me also think, uh, you know, different ways. So my brain was all shook up. Yeah, and, but, but you stayed, I mean, you went in, and uh, I'm guessing for your undergrad and then later graduate education, uh, I mean, you pursued this, this scholarly route for answers, is that? Yeah, yeah, you... I was always interested in the bottom of things. You know, getting to the bottom of things. So whatever, whatever I was doing, I was trying to get to the very bottom, and that's what I'm doing now. I think that to say that, you know, we got a lot of problems, but what's at the bottom is economic ideology. Uh huh. So it's not the white nationalist. It's not Trump. These are surface phenomena. So you, you're looking actually back to your childhood and seeing all the ideology that was thrown at you and seeing how people use ideology even. Yeah, yeah. And I don't commit. I'm not committed to anything else except to the survival of the human race. <laughs> now, know, ideology is, doesn't get us there. Which is very broad, which is, which is an yeah. ideology, you know. Okay, Trump doesn't your own. care about the survival of the human race. And there were a lot of other people who have not been particularly interested in the survival of the human race. But that's my ideology. And that's how I came up with the ideology of economics with a human face. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Humanistic economics. Yes. That is what I was, I was going to, uh, I wanted to ask you. That was one of my first, first questions is, is human economics side of things it draws from this and you, but you during it you your research is based on a lot of human biology as well or, yeah, or looking well, I at just, that i just came up uh that was an accidental thing that um 
I learned about the possibility of, uh, of exploring that in graduate school. And it, it really appealed to me because again, it went to the bottom of things. It was data driven and something entirely new. So it was right up my alley. It was the kind of thing that very few people would be willing to take their chances on. But taking chances is part of my family's uh, experience. So it came natural to me to do something that nobody else wanted to do, uh -huh. you see. And, and, and what did you find in it? What did you find by looking well, at it? Well, I found that uh there there is an incredible effect on the economy uh, the of the economy economy on the human organism as a biological system not surprising right because you would expect that what people do and what people eat and the kind of medical um system that exists is going to affect uh, the way the human body reacts Yes. Uh -huh. But it was very interesting to document it and going back to the 17th century. And then uh, I came to the realization that, you know, monetary measures are not all that good in depicting everything that is going on in the uh, human biological system. Because there are times when the economy is booming and the biology isn't really doing so well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that came to be, um, you know, very, uh, very important and useful, controversial uh, discovery that then um, took me 30 years to work on. Mm -hmm. And, this gets and into that then led me directly into you know, criticizing the mainstream economic uh, uh, canon because, you know, they were focusing on growth, on GMP, on monetary measures. And I say, forget it, forget it. There are more important things than that. And um, so one thing led to the other. And that's how I got to be where I am today. And this is you're you bring in social well I don't want to say social issues you bring in but but you address these social issues and social inequalities between different groups between different social groups is that well you have to you have to uh, think about what is a good uh, society you know what what, what is one <laughs> well a good society in which uh, everybody thrives. Everybody can live with dignity. Everybody has their basic needs met. The stock market it doesn't is, provide that? And then the stock market doesn't provide it because 50% of the population owns about a sliver. And the top 1% in today's America owns $25 million on average. Jeez. And, okay, and uh, you know that—that's not a—you cannot con conceive of that as a fair distribution, and uh, that's one of the main reasons why we have all the problems we have. Uh huh. Is there a certain period in time? Well, we could look at the U.S. maybe for for example, right first. Is there a period in time where things really started going? To, this different difference between the haves and the have-nots much bigger 1981 uh why reagan caused all this or well reagan began it mm -hmm. okay it happens and that year you can pinpoint it you can show the kinks in the graphs it's amazing it, it starts in 1981 and then of course leads to trump and beyond uh-huh Because you now, know, I mean, we have we have Trump, but we also have a stock market that that's doing awesome. But uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and what the the highest unemployment ever? I I I I don't have my exact figures, but uh, as high as the Great Depression right now, at least. Well, it shouldn't be surprising that the stock market is up because uh, the Federal Reserve pumped three trillion dollars into 
the financial sector since uh, the middle of uh, February. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or March, excuse me, for middle of March. Yes. And then, so three trillion dollars does a lot of uh, <laughs> creates a lot of bubble creates a big bubble. Believe me, is is this what we're headed for? I mean, these uh, well, it's uh, not headed for. We're there. We're there already in in a bubble. Well, of course, Stuck three market. trillion dollars. How do, how do we get out of it though? I mean, if this is all debt or just printed money, how do we get out of it? Uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. It's uh, been bad policy since 1981. You're talking about 40 years. Mm -hmm. but how do you get out of 40 years? How, you gotta, how, you gotta, sorry. How, how was society fair before? Like why, why, why? So you have this 1981 as, as a point where things changed. But what was going on before then? What, why was it maybe better or... People well, the new deal, as... uh, the new deal started in 1933 and lasted till 1980, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the new deal was a new way of thinking about the economy, where the economy, where the government was active, Keynesianism was uh, strong, and inequality was decreasing. Okay, it was decreasing all the way from 1929 to 1980. Is that because of an explicit government policy or political, uh, even ideology, to reduce well, inequality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but of course, it started already with the stock market crash. A lot of uh, the wealthy people uh, lost uh, money there, and then came the Second World War, and that put a lid on uh, wages and CEO salaries. In the 1950s and 1960s, the union was uh, still pretty strong and um, they were able to make sure that uh, the workers received a part of the profits. And that ever that ever evaporated after 1981. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, no, but also, it, it, the, excuse me, uh, this ties into globalization as well. The rise yeah, of yeah. other countries. Well, first came Reagan. First came Reagan with, with trickle-down economics that didn't trickle. Mm -hmm. You know, created a lot of uh, problems. Then came globalization, clobbered a lot of people. That was Clinton. Mm -hmm. With factories Clinton. moving abroad. Factories moving around. And uh, people at the bottom got clobbered. Mm -hmm. That was Clinton who did that. He's, he's, he's to be blamed. But of course, economists were telling them that things were going to be okay. You know, that uh, comparative advantage means everybody benefits. Yes, yes. Americans, uh, the, Americans the, benefit. The, the ideology uh, at the time. Again, the ideology works uh, in there. And, but, but then let's look outside the United States. So we have China and all the dramatic uh, economic growth there, India, in many countries. Yeah, but though. that's not going to help uh, America. No, but how do we find this balance? Uh, because in your book, you br bring up Amartya Sen and yeah. then this capabilities approach. And yeah. one of the things he talks about, about equity and inequity is, is sure. we rise everyone up to the sure. top together. Sure. Well, yeah, but that means that uh, the other countries of the world have to be helped and developed, but not at the expense of people at the bottom of the totem pole in the United States, uh -huh. because that ain't going to be a stable system. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And is it, it isn't a stable system. They finally, in uh, 2016, they rebelled. Yes. And rightly mm -hmm. so, because they were mishandled. So the concept is Pareto optimality. And what, what is that? That means that everybody has to benefit. Uh huh. Yes. Okay, or at least not be worse off. Yes, not worse so, off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yes, we have to help the Indians and the Chinese, but we got to do it in such a way that we don't kill our own society. Uh-huh. And, and that's what and that's what economists were not open-minded enough to realize
So these blackboard economists, as they're labeled, then they they pushed what this this globalization narrative. Yeah, yeah. Americans are going to benefit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the end, the say factory workers. I mean, this is right. The rise of Trump or the in the election of Trump was bring yeah. back these jobs, foster. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. It rode the wave of populism. But it's not Trump's fault. It's the economist's fault. It's Milton Friedman's fault. It's Frederick Hayek's fault. It's Gregory Mankiw's fault. <laughs> and uh, Marty Feldstein and Arthur Laffer. And I can name you a dozen other people who didn't think broadly enough. They were thinking like this. Just about the GNP, as you mentioned. Yeah, the GMP is going up, then it's fine. Growth, yeah, cool. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But not the social issues, not the people. Well, the it's bottom. not only a social issue. If you lose your job, that's not only a social issue. That's also an economic issue. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right away, you're, you're forlorn. You don't know what to do. You kill yourself. So you're thinking kind of in the terms of the individual, maybe community as well. Like, how does this economic system benefit people rather than the whole that's that's well no i mean people are part of the whole right <laughs> well well <laughs> i know but, right, but i'm part, not averages it's not only the average, average. that count yeah because uh you know everybody touts the averages i call it the tyranny of averages what so what what is wrong with the average well the average <laughs> doesn't consider the distribution Mm. <laughs> right? What is what are people doing at the bottom? They're killing 150,000 people kill themselves every year in the United States out of anxiety. That's the case in Deaton book. In case you haven't looked at it yet, have a look. Uh, so we have the top 1% that have what? Yeah, it's you know a 1%. The They're not letting, you know, nothing trickles down, not yes. even to the 10%. You know, tiny bit, the drop here and the drop there, but nothing nothing beyond the 1%. They keep it all to themselves. It's amazing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, I, I want to maybe shift then to government policy specifically. So wh- how, is it just the tax rate that's the issue or... Well, Are there no, other? It's, it's all sorts of. Uh, look at uh, globalization. That's a you know that's uh-huh. a government policy of letting the factories be destroyed. It's a destruction of immense proportions. A historical mistake. Should we? Uh, well, I mean, because Trump, right? He was against free trade. Is against yeah, free you, trade. You know, these, these are not reversible processes. Uh huh. You know, I can condemn that we should not have done that in 1994 or 2001. But now in 2020, you can't go back. Yes. It's, <laughs> these are non-reversible processes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to put, put some taxes, uh, trade tariffs on now, you're not going to bring back the factories. Who's going to build a textile factory in, in North Carolina? Yeah, yeah. Who? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> no, nobody in their right mind is going to build a textile factory in North Carolina now. But in those days, those factories could have run for another five, ten years. Yeah. Yeah. And that could have won us five or ten years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to and plan now, the transition mm-hmm. correctly. Okay. And what about it's called, it's called pad dependence. The big word there is pad dependence. So by yeah, and buying this five to ten years, what could have been done in that five to ten years? Well, you could have retrained a lot of those folks. Uh-huh. You could have made you have in order to do it right, you have to make sure that those folks have got something to do with their lives. Yes, because this is one of the issues with the energy transition. Uh, yeah, called the just transition is that we yeah. know we have climate change. We know we have to save yeah. phase out fossil fuels. So these people have to be retrained or there's going to be negative consequences. 
But but there are a million things that these folks could do, right? Because uh, renewable energy is a big, uh, you know, big uh, sector. Yes, but okay. usually the, all, mm-hmm. all you need is money. Oh, but <laughs> my my argument <laughs> right. is my argument is maybe you don't need money because the people that get the money are the ones that have the money already. And it's well, the people that need the money. I mean, it, it may be that uh, the rate of investment is insufficient in uh, in solar cells. Mm-hmm. What's keeping us from turning the uh, the the Nevada deserts into a, a humongous solar factory? What's keeping us? How much would it take? A lot. But not yeah, that much. But, it's but, cheap. But, but, but we're, we're spending trillions of dollars now. Yes, yes. And, and you know, not getting much for it. Uh, Trump amassed a, a deficit of $7 trillion since he's been in office. Yeah. And you can imagine what that kind of money would have done to uh, the uh, solar energy business. Yes. But for, for the people, though, I mean, then more investment in, for, for example, education needs to occur. Definitely, definitely. Uh-huh. But you can take the oil workers and make them into uh, people who install these solar cells in the Nevada desert. Why can't you do that? Right, right. Well, <clears throat> uh, so, some would say it's a different skill set or... The people well, have to move. It cannot be that different. It cannot be that different. Uh, I could do it. I'm sure I could do it. So this is where I push against you <laughs> as a mainstream economist then, is where, where yes, these things can occur, but, uh, and this is one of the things I, I'm grappling with right now, is there, especially in like coal communities, these people that live in the coal communities, uh, that they have to move or something has to come in to replace the coal mine, for example. Yeah, but it doesn't seem so ominous to me. Why, 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 why can't you produce solar cells in West Virginia? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But then they would take government policy to direct that. Well, of course, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you could do it. Yeah. You could do it overnight. Yes, yes. Start uh, tax incentives. Is this the race to the bottom where we're? I mean, this was this is very 1990s or early 2000. I think <laughs> the competition between localities and the race to the bottom, lower tax rates. It, it doesn't have to even involve. It's the government who, who puts these uh, these factories into operation, and then you can privatize them once they're running. You know, once the, you secured, you, there's no race to the bottom. You don't, you don't need tax breaks. Mm-hmm. But do we need trade barriers anymore? Or you said the essentially the genie's out of the bottle. How- well, I, I don't know enough about the solar cell, uh, you uh-huh. know, sector to know. Or I mean, maybe just generally as a as a whole. So. I mean, no, I, I think trade barriers are are problematic the way uh, Trump tried to uh, introduce them because they're against an, an individual country. Yeah. That's a bad idea to tangle with China because you know that psychologically they're much stronger than we are Westerners. Mm-hmm. That's not a that's not a, a conflict that I think that. The Westerners can win. You know, to get into a trade war with China was, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a very bad policy. Mm-hmm. So but mm-hmm. in 2003, Warren Buffett published an article in Fortune magazine that I urge you to look at, which uh advocated a policy of import certificates. Mm -hmm. 
and that says that every time you export something, you get an equivalent or more than equivalent amount of, a, of certificates. These certificates are then tradable and um, you can only import stuff with these certificates. It's, it's kind of like for like, so it balances yeah. out. Yeah. So you can balance your foreign account sector. Boeing sells a million dollars worth of uh, airplanes abroad, doesn't matter where, you know, sells it to India, let's say, and gets these million dollars worth of certificates. It can then sell these certificates for, say, $20,000 to Walmart and Walmart can then import a million dollars worth of goods from China. I find this to be a terrific, it's part, it's in my book. It's, I yes. find this to be a good system. Of course, for a million dollars worth of exports, you can in the beginning give, allow 1.2 million dollars worth of imports uh, so that it, the, the thing doesn't balance immediately. You can finagle it. Mm -hmm. But the point is that it's under your control. It's not completely out of your control. Mm -hmm. And of course, that gives the uh, foreign countries an incentive to buy your product. Yeah. <laughs> you now, see what I mean? But, but now, now, yeah. So now, I mean, kind of going forward, we can't give up this international trade system, but probably countries can work together in maybe establishing limits or establishing certain uh, well, arrangements. I, I, don't, I don't know enough about uh, you know the politics of it, how yeah. to bring that about, but it seems to me that um, that's what we should be thinking about, how, how to bring... Uh, that sort of that kind of a system into being that would I think would be the right way to go because then China all of a sudden has an incentive to buy our planes and not the European airplanes and mm -hmm. in fact they're going to buy our airplanes in order to sell them to Mongolia yeah. so that we have more of these imports because they cannot retaliate that's the main point yeah but uh, I'm interested in getting to this well-being uh, and, and the well-being of, of people with, within this uh, system. So, because, I mean, basically, we, we need to provide jobs to, to lift well-being, but economic output is not everything. Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, mm -hmm. if you look at which countries are the happiest in the world, that's what you Den should be Denmark. For. Isn't Denmark supposed to be? Denmark, Norway, the Scandinavian countries, Switzerland. These are the countries that should give us the direction in which to move because they have the happiest uh, population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's as simple as that, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. But the tax rates are somewhat fair. I mean, there's not a big uh, income gap or income yeah, difference. There's between. not a big income gap. Uh -huh. Everybody can feel secure. The insecurity of the American form of capitalism puts an incredible stress on people. You cannot be a good uh, citizen or a good person with living in that much stress. Yes. Yes. Multiple jobs, <laughs> no, no medical Multiple care. Multiple part-time jobs. Yes, uh, yes. Nobody to look after the kids. I can't meet my uh, credit card payments. The American system is in disarray, mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. well know, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> I don't want to say this is one of the reasons I stay in Hungary, but uh, there's benefits even in Hungary, uh, <laughs> like maternity leave. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it yeah. just seems so weird. I mean, what in America now that a woman gets three months leave or one month or something I, like this? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but in Hungary, it's one year or up to three years, and it really it just seems so normal. I mean, okay, I've been here for for a long time, but not yeah. to that the the woman would yeah. have the mother would have to go back to yeah. work right away. 
as soon as yeah. she gave birth. So all, yeah. all these things uh, play. And then, but how much do you think, um, uh, maybe move, move into the corporate realm, uh, the way that corporations are treated, uh, even we can get into like regulation uh, or financial obligations, reporting requirements. Uh, I was interested to go into, for example, utilities uh, and look at the role that monopolies or competition plays in, in the marketplace. And, and for example, why would monopolies, because even under, under the New Deal, monopolies were put in place as a way to allow, you know, to reduce competition, <laughs> but to serve the people. So is there, is there a, a place and a time where monopolies are actually good? Well, I suppose in utilities, right? You don't want, uh, you don't need two uh, electric companies in a particular locality, right? But that kind of a monopoly is called a technical monopoly. And that, uh, that has to be, uh, you know, regulated, strictly regulated, make sure that they don't take advantage of, uh, of their monopoly position. So where monopolies are allowed to exist, they have to be uh, carefully, carefully, over, over careful oversight. But the big, pro the big problem is oligopolies with, with immense power. Mm -hmm. That uh, are not regulated and take a uh, big advantage of um, people and the system, take advantage of the system. Mm -hmm. You have uh, regulatory capture. Is that one of, uh, does that tie into with oligopolies? Well, you have uh, not only uh, regulatory capture, but you have the revolving door. Mm-hmm. And then you have a crazy legal system which declares that a corporation is a human person. Yes, and in your book, that's you took issue with that. <laughs> yeah, right. What What's and, wrong with a corporation being considered a human? Well, you can't put it in jail. You can't put a uh, you can't put a corporation in jail, right? But isn't this the one of the bases? I'm just thinking with the new conservative Supreme Court justices in place that this, the role of the corporation, might have uh, have greater protection going forward. Yeah, uh, they might. Yeah, but the corporations do not exist in the uh, Constitution. They're not part of the Constitution. They're not mentioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all that is artificial, uh, you know, those who are uh, strict constructionists yes. should really say the corporations uh, are not part of the Constitution. Of course, they're not. Uh, they don't have any rights. Yes. Are, are they the, one of the reasons for the income inequality as well? Yeah, because uh, the playing field is not level. Uh-huh. Those with power beget more power. This and ties into that's how, that, that's how you get these concentrations of power. Into the campaign finance uh well system. Yeah, can, to, uh -huh. campaign finance and these uh, folks have a lot of money. Of course they can buy their way into the halls of Congress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't, my my question was would be like what's wrong with that? But I mean, well, what's but, wrong with that is that uh, the social contract uh, breaks up because the general will cannot uh, become part of the uh, policy making mechanism. And the social contract lopsided. Yeah, but so, the social contract has been broken. What? What do you? What? Actually, this is a very good question. What? What? What do you think is the American social contract at the moment, or was in the past? Well, at the moment, it's broken. Yeah, you know, in the past, obviously, there was an idea that we're in this together and we have to, uh, we have to come out of it. I think of uh, FDR's uh, speeches in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of those 
and I have to tell you, they were terrific. Mm -hmm. And um, they recognize the social contract. We have to, we have to overcome these problems, and we're in this together. And then came the Second World War, and obviously a lot of people were willing to fight for us. So yes, it it did. Uh, it the, did the, exist. It mm -hmm. did exist. So maybe this is what lasted fifty years was this social contract, but then under Reagan it was broken. Well, it started uh, with the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, like it was like a um, an atomic bomb on the social contract because it was so fake and it's so uh, so devastating. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's my take on it. No, but I mean, I'm, it brings me uh, to to the present to the pandemic. Yeah. And the failing health system that we have. Well, and I, I wrote about the failing health system uh, back in the early uh, 21st century because I was studying human biology. Yes. Uh -huh. You know, I said it's not possible that you have a system in which uh, people live two years less uh, but pay twice as much for it. What kind of a <laughs> medical system is that? You know, uh, it's, it's incredibly inefficient. And what does this so, say about the social contract that's in the U.S. then? Well, it's broken. That's what I'm trying to say. It's broken. Yeah. The social uh -huh. contract is broken. Everybody is in it for himself or herself. And it ain't, ain't going to work like that. It's society can't uh, stick together like that. It's gotta, there's got to be a lot of um, give and take. You cannot be too greedy and take too much of the pie and still think that the social contract is going to uh, stay in place. Uh -huh. But do you think the, the wealthier now, and I have no ideas on numbers, just philanthrop uh, philanthropy is, is, a much, is a bigger topic now. Do, do you think that makes a difference or it just well, perpetuates? It's, it's, it's sure, it's, it's good at the margin. You know, a billion here and a billion there, it sounds nice, but it ain't going to solve the big problems that we have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for the healthcare system, because, I mean, maybe we can talk about this for a minute, is what is the pandemic for you and the, I don't know how people are, are being treated overall? Uh, what does well, that speak to the development? It's devastating, isn't it, to have uh, more than 300 thousand uh, people perish and you know the Republican Party is silent and the president takes it in stride you know it's not a big deal it seems to him he's just totally um, totally missing this uh, empathy that uh, we would need from a uh, leader mm -hmm. but is, is this just like another in indication that the U.S. is just, <laughs> I don't want to say it's going down, down, but along those lines where other nations, yeah, for example, yeah. China. Yeah, it's obvious that uh, on many fronts, it's not only the pandemic, yeah. but on many fronts. And it's been clear, you know, for some time that, um, that, um, you know, we were on the top for a half a century and then bungled it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, how, I guess, I guess, what what is the way out? <laughs> I don't think Biden. My, my easy question for you would be like, well, can Biden solve this? But I, I don't, I don't even think that that would well, be the there's, case. Well, there's there's uh, there's no way out. There's no way out because. The uh, Constitution is anachronistic, mm -hmm. right? It cannot possibly be the case that Hillary Clinton won three million more voters and yet did not become president. That's not a, you know, a democratic system. It cannot be that money can buy you so many politicians and 
still thing that somehow we're going to be a uh, democratic system cannot possibly be the case that money is equated with speech and people can give as much money as, as they want to the political process. It cannot be. It just was not, it ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. But so has democracy had its day? I mean, maybe- yeah, we're, we're no longer in a democracy. Yeah. This is, this is no longer a democracy. It's a plutocracy. So the future may be, be plutocracies and autocracies rather than democracies. Well, you know, the future is, is uh, not possible to predict. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in 1789, you could, have, could not have predicted a Napoleon. Yeah. You could not have predicted that uh, the Bourbons would, be, uh, would come back in, to power in 1815 you could not predict this is a revolution in my view and revolutions are chaotic and not predictable but they're never pretty or or very seldom are they pretty you know maybe not never the glorious revolution was pretty good Uh, maybe i want to go back then to your uh, rebellion against black, blackboard economists. So what, what should be people be, I would say, studying or researching now that will actually let them learn more about the human side of economics? Well, I, I would say that my book does hopefully a pretty good job of beginning that process. It's not the only one, but... Uh, but uh, it enables students to 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 see that there are other ways of looking at the world and that uh, economics is toxic mainstream economics as taught from the textbooks is toxic and actually is responsible for where we are mm-hmm. because reagan didn't do all those uh policies by himself he had intellectual support thatcher had intellectual support uh, by, uh clinton had intellectual support in the way he organized uh, globalization These folks didn't act by themselves. We haven't spoken about Obama yet, but Obama had intellectual support in the way he got out of the financial crisis, which was also toxic. Are we at a tipping point where we have to redo economic education? Well, that's what I'm trying trying to point out. Absolutely. Economics has been toxic because it glorified the market without the commonsensical approach that in fact uh, all markets need oversight and greed ain't good for us you got to leave a little bit for the other guy otherwise the other guy's gonna clobber you one way or another but then that's why regulation and climate change for example uh... yeah well climate change is a part of that sure Uh because it, it threatens the whole system but the market was not particularly interested in climate change, you know, because all those CEOs were interested in, in the uh, bottom line this quarter, never mind next year. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the quarter, this quarter. Well, you can't have an economic policy like that that uh, works toward the survival of the human race. So is it a failing of, I mean, I hate to use the word because it's so broad, but capitalism, but rather maybe it's a failing of, so maybe it's not a failing of capitalism, but the way we approach our capitalistic system. Yeah, there are varieties of capitalism. As we said, Denmark does pretty well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I lived in Germany for 18 years and found that kind of capitalism much safer than the American kind. Yes. 
It's yeah. not an accident that both 1929 and 2008 started in Wall Street. That's not an accident. Yeah, yeah. And, and th this gets us into the issue of trust as well. So in the American, say, capitalistic mode, th there is limited trust. Whereas maybe... Yeah, well, and trust is evaporating. They, yeah. Trust is, is a thing of the past. There's no trust. When you go into a doctor's office and you have to pay in advance in order to be seen by the doctor. Yeah. They don't even trust you to pay after after you've seen them. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, one, I had to go to the doctor in America because, uh, yeah, I forget what we what, what happened to us. But, but yeah, the, the insurance company had arranged with the hospital beforehand for the payment and all this. I, like here, I never even think about it. I just exactly. go. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's not a business. It's not supposed to be a business. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even get that good of a health care, but I'm, <laughs> at least I'm alive. I mean, yeah. Yeah, the, the Hung yeah, let's not get the Hungarian health system, but... But it, it, it's functional and people have access to it. I think that that's yeah, the most. Yeah, yeah. If I speak to my siblings in America, they're always worried about the health care, the insurance and how much that goes up every year. Exactly. And that worry <laughs> then translates into a life that is not satisfying. Yeah. And it's so nice not to even have to worry about it. Exactly. But. And that's what people do not understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's just something, or co-pays, or... Yeah, all these it's so complicated. Crazy. Yeah. I don't know, as long as I'm not sick, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good year to talk about this. So, okay. Uh, John, I, I want to thank you very much uh, for our wide-ranging discussion here. <laughs> right. <laughs> and And ideology. I guess, I guess my one last question to you is really uh going forward is is what the critical thinking skill we need to have and looking at people every day and around us or yeah it's very difficult to to have those skills though michael because um there's so much uh, inculcation of ideology that it's very very difficult to think broadly especially in economics that is so narrow that does not want to uh, want to isolate itself from sociology mm -hmm. and po political uh, philosophy and and so on and so forth it wants to think of itself as as an isolated discipline and it's nonsense because the economy is embedded in a society and in a political system and in a cultural uh, entity and so forth so it's not easy to have an open mind yes actually actually i have one one more question because i mean i feel like we are actually quite privileged because we do travel and we live in different continents and are, are quite mobile. How, how important and now going forward, I mean, because traveling is very different, but how important is travel to you and to getting these different uh, perspectives? Well, for me, I, I, I lived it. Yeah. You know, yeah. from the very beginning of my life. It's not a, cho not a choice I made. I'm going to be an open-minded person. <laughs> You know, it was uh, not a choice. It was part of my uh, life. It was superimposed on me by history. So, yeah, people see other cultures and other uh, societies. It's helpful. Mm -hmm. it, it, it helps to, to open one's mind and, and not be so patriotic. So, blatantly patriotic like i want to make america great again you know that sort of thing i would say um i'd like to make america as healthy as the uh as the danish are let's say yeah or or the norwegians you know i, I want to make uh, america as healthy as the europeans that would be a good slogan 
You know, I don't yes. think it would go over well. <laughs> no, you're not going to become president on that. No, no. But uh, that's what I would urge people to, to the way they should think. You know, I would like American uh, high school students to score as high on their math test as the finish. Yes. And it's quantifiable, right? So it's it's quantifiable and it's it would be a good goal. I don't want any more black people shot in the back. You know, yes. that would be a good slogan. Yes. Another another uh winning yeah, I mean but another winning slogan, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but it's also interesting that <clears throat> uh Biden won over Trump and, and both popular vote, right? And the electoral, yeah, electoral and college the elect- as well. Uh, and electoral uh, the electoral college vote was hair thin. Yes. You know, yes. fifteen thousand in Georgia and maybe uh, another fifteen thousand in Nevada. Is that a democratic system when you're ahead seven million? Yeah, that's seven true. millions. Yes. And you depend on fifteen thousand votes here and another fifteen thousand there. Is that a democratic system? Yeah, just to scrape by. Uh huh. Uh huh. But people voted for Biden for a change. They rejected this Trump. Yeah, but it's mm-hmm. still scary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still scary that it was so close. It's yes. still scary that the president is not conceded. It's yes. still scary that if it hadn't been for COVID, uh, Biden would not have won. Yes. It's still scary that 72 million people voted for an authoritarian income poop. Yes. yes. And it's still scary that Biden is essentially a backward looking guy who is going to try to keep the system afloat for a few more years but doesn't have any more ideas on on how to get back on a good track than Obama did into back in 2008. So it's yeah. still scary as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. No, that's kind of where I'm at too. Okay, John, thank you very much. Uh, thanks so much for the, the time and, and the deep thoughts. Nice talking to you and good luck.